is a continuation of the first. We begin in John chapter 21, verse 15 following. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said to him, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren, that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all the good things that we know and experience in life. Every good and perfect gift comes from your gracious hands. We thank you that even the harsh learning experiences through which we pass have purposes to teach us lessons that perhaps we could not learn any other way. We thank you for your great wisdom in working these things out so that one day they shall reflect your glory and they shall all be for our good. We are thankful for the lesson that we have this morning. It's far bigger than the preacher is to preach it. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to take your blessed word and feed our minds and hearts with it so that we may be strengthened to be true, earnest Christians in all that we have in our. Bless us in our sharing with people all over the world who are hungry and who are in need. And may they know that what we give, we give because of what you have given, your great Son who came to save us. In his name we pray. Amen.
It's a very moving fact that this scene in the close of the gospel according to John brings us back again to uh, an interesting encounter. The first time that Jesus had called these people to follow him was when they were fishing. And it's always a moving experience to go back to a place that stirs up memories. Just this morning, before we came up here, we had a telephone call, and my wife said Frank Warren had called. And I'm glad Frank called, and I'm glad he's here this morning. Because Frank and I used to go to the same grade school out in Paris, Texas. That's a long time ago. And uh, it brings back a lot of memories, just to think about old Graham School in the third ward in Paris, Texas. And when I go back home again, even though things are all changed around there, it does me good to walk up the same street that I used to walk up barefooted in the springtime and headed for school. And many memories flood through my mind when I cross through the cemetery that I always walked through to go to that school. I can remember as a little boy the cool feeling when I got close to that cemetery. And then as time went on, I can remember uh, how many things come back uh, to me again. Well, uh, there's something good about going home and away because it can stir up memories that may be useful and helpful to us. But I think that when Jesus appeared to these apostles who were fishing, that perhaps there was one of them especially whose heart was very heavy. It was heavy because he had betrayed his Lord. And I want you for that reason to look especially at your bulletin this morning and the part that says love is on the other side because this is taken from a part of Scripture Union. Uh, in just a couple of weeks their board of trust will be meeting and I am a trustee of that group. This is a wonderful little magazine, little devotional book that, that's about 130 years old that has to do with the helping us to stick with the reading of the Scripture. And when it deals with this particular passage, we are told that failure does not mean that we will not be able to serve Jesus in the future. I don't know about you, but that's a great comfort to me. To know that failure does not mean that I will not be able to say, serve Jesus in the future. Because there are people, when you have tried and failed, are ready to cast you off on the junk pile and never look at you again and think that you will never be of any future service to the Lord. Often young people come to me and they want to know about the quotes victorious Christian life. They want to talk to me about some six million dollar Christian man or woman. Uh, that is some person who's sort of a bionic Christian who never fails, who always succeeds. Well there is no such person. Jesus Christ was the only one. Now here we're told about Peter. Jesus shows us that by lifting Peter from the trough of despair, just as Peter had denied Jesus three times in public, so Jesus gives him a gentle threefold push back into leadership in front of the others. Jesus knows the worst about us, but he continues to accept and to use us in his church. Remember that the next time you deal with someone who has tried and failed. Uh, Paul has a wonderful verse on how to restore a backslider. It's in Galatians. 
uh, he wrote Galatian, the letter to the Galatians to a group of people uh, for whom he had some great problems in dealing with. And uh, when he writes to them, he tells them, if one is overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now look at our lesson again printed. Love includes emotions, but it does not depend only on good feelings. Jesus helped Peter to see what love is. What is love? Love is putting Jesus before possessions and friends and lifestyle and ambitions. And then look up that reference in Colossians 1.18 and you'll see this reasserted. Uh, look it up and read it. Uh, it means becoming involved with others. That's what love is. Feeling is more than talking about God. I spoke a moment ago about going back home again. And I hope I can go back this uh, spring. I'd I can't go this spring, but I wish I could get there early. I'd like to get there before my mother's 90th birthday. Uh, I would like to be there for that time uh, because it, uh, you know, sentiment is not what I'm talking about now. Sentiment, listen to this and it'll be worth coming to church today. Sentiment uh, is a feeling without a responsibility. Now that's worth knowing. Sentiment is a feeling without a responsibility. Now that's not very helpful. That's like tickling your feet to make yourself laugh. It doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, there's nothing to that. The type of sentiment that will produce some change in your will and in your direction, that type of sentiment is good because it, it, it can bear some responsibility to it. Being involved with others, feeling is more than talking about God. Let people feel God's love through you because you try to understand and care for them in practical ways. That's what Jesus does with Peter here. Then dedicating your will and life to God for him to use in whatever way he chooses. Study this this afternoon or some other time. Refusing to compete with others when God uses them differently from yourself, as Peter and John's ministries will be different. And remember that those who are forgiven the most, love the most, and are often the most used by God. You are never a write-off. And then remember the keynote, which is to follow me. That is to follow Jesus. Now then, back to this marvelous chapter again, and I'll try to give you some exposition of it. When John had come to the end of his book, he had written those tremendous words. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of preaching the gospel. That's the only reason I am in the ministry today. That's the reason the Gospel of John was written. That's the reason Jesus died on the cross. That's the G reason God brought him back from the dead. That believing in him, you might have life through his name. And there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby 
you must be saved. There's no other way, there's no other name. Now then comes this Easter postscript. John, I expect, did not intend to put this there. But like we are so often prone to do, when we write a letter, we've got ready to seal it. In fact, I've sealed it and then had to tear it open to put a postscript. I thought of something after I'd written it that I wanted to add. And John thought of something that he needed to add to. It's a whole chapter and it deals largely with Peter. And it's because of the notable failure that Peter had made that John is going to deal with it here. He is going to show us the challenge that he brought to Peter, and he is going to show the confession that Peter makes of his Lord, and then he is going to show the commission that he gives to this so-called failure. John knows that there's a reason for writing all of this down, and the reason is that people will later be able to understand the prominent place that this man plays in the part of the disciples. When Jesus said, I shall build my church upon this rock, I started to call this sermon Rocky Three uh, because I've preached on Peter before, Rocky Three. It's a good name for a sermon. He called him Rocky. He called him Rocky because he's gonna build his church on him. And I have young people who come back to me and they say, oh, I can't become a Christian because if I do become a Christian or I try to, uh, I'll fail or I won't be perfect. And I say, look at Peter. Look at Peter. I've often told this congregation, I am not a Roman Catholic, I'm a Holy Catholic. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and I accept a lot of friends in the Roman Catholic Church, but if I were picking a Pope, Peter would be my choice. Uh, he would be good because if he can be a Christian, I can be a Christian too. I can give all my heart and life over to him. Now, I don't believe in the infallibility. Uh, uh, Peter certainly wasn't infallible, and that proves uh, this right here, and I like our present Pope very much. In fact, someone was upset because I have a picture of him in my room at home, but, uh, but he's a good man. We can learn a lot from him. After these things, Jesus showed himself to them. Now, what's he going to do? Uh, he is going to restore Peter. Simon Peter is there, and he calls out the names of these people. Peter. He's going to restore that failure. Thomas, that cynic, who said, unless I can see him and put my hand into his side and my finger into his nail prints, I won't believe that he is raised from the dead. Nathaniel that honest Jew in whom there was no guile. And the sons of Zebedee, and that's putting it politely, they were the sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy some people who didn't want Jesus to come through their village, and two other of his disciples. Well, I, I say this because Jesus deals with each of these personally, and this is after his resurrection from the dead. And if Easter does not mean that the risen living Christ is dealing with you personally, then you ought to study whether or not you know Christ. Do you know him? Is he alive as far as you are concerned? And does he exercise a deciding influence over your life? A personal resurrection. 
We don't really expect celebrities to pay us much attention. I was in Palm Beach at a board meeting in February, and Peter Ustinov walked across the street. Big old chugging fellow came across the street. And I wanted to speak to him because I'd watched that series on television about Nicholas Nickleby, and I'd seen him, and you know, I felt like I knew him, and I thought, where is that guy? I know him. And then I thought, I'll go speak. And then I thought, no, why do you want to speak to him? He worry him. Then everyone on the street will go over there. And so I didn't speak to him. And then I, I, I remember another time when we were over in um, Edinburgh, and the, the queen was coming back. I remember it was raining terribly hard, and our three sons were with us, and uh, uh, the queen was driving um, uh, her entourage, her, the security car was coming by, and there were thousands of people literally lined the street to see the queen. Don't tell my wife this, but I've always loved the queen. I've, <laughs> I've been in love with her for years. She is a very beautiful lady, and I like to watch. When I was in Edinburgh, I used to watch the news go off at night, and then they would play God Save the Queen and show that wonderful picture of Queen Elizabeth. And I wanted to see the Queen. Now, when the Queen's car went by, one of our children who just got his camera that year, I think was Frank, uh, took a picture of it. And later I looked in his scrapbook, and there was a blur there, and it said, The Queen Goes By. <laughs> well, I didn't expect the security car to pull over and then the, the Queen's car, Rolls Royce, to stop and the doorman to open it and the Queen to say, hey, Calvin, come here, tell me about your boys, tell me about your family, tell, uh, how's everything in Montreal? Yeah, I didn't expect that. I thought it would be great just to get a glimpse of her when she goes by. But now here is Jesus, infinitely more important than any earthly figure, the Son of God. And he comes back and he manifests himself to Simon Peter, the failure who denied him, to Thomas, the cynic, uh, to Nathaniel, who said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, to the sons of Zebedee, who want to call down thunder, who want to sit on his right and his left in the kingdom. He comes back personally to each one of these. And so Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Now, a lot of people argue about this, and they say, well, Peter, had gone back on his calling, that the Lord had called him to be a fisher of men, and here he is going back to fish for fish. Why did he do that? I think he did it because he wanted something to eat. After the resurrection, you still have to make a living. After Easter, you still have to go back to work. After Sunday, you got to go back to work on Monday. And there's nothing really wrong with this. I don't think it's meant to teach us that he went back, uh, uh, deserted Jesus. Uh, Peter was an impetuous person. He was impulsive. Uh, and uh, uh, he was not the kind of person who could just sit still. And he had to be doing something. And I think they needed to make a living. So Peter uh, went to go fishing. Well. There again, they fished all night, and they caught nothing. There are other commentators who say, well, this is proof that they weren't in the Lord's will. If that's true, I have certainly not been in the Lord's will about 75% of the time that I've gone fishing, <laughs> because I know that feeling about not catching anything. And, and I've also known some 29-carat reprobates that must have been in his will because they were catching fish. <laughs> so I don't think that's any way to judge this. Uh, but when the, the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, 
And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. There was something about that tremendous, powerful, resurrected body of his that made it difficult for them to uh, recognize him. He walked with those two on the road to Emmaus and their eyes were holding that they should not know him and they didn't until he had made the prayer and the breaking of the bread. Then they understood who he was. And then they could say our hearts burned within us while we walked with him in the way and he opened unto us the scriptures. There was something there that they had not, that, that was about him that was too great for them to take in in that moment. So he is on the shore. And he calls out, and I'm glad John apologized before we came out here, John Hillsman, who led so beautifully a while ago in the first part of our worship. He said, I'm not sure I have the same translation you do. I'm glad he didn't, because my translation says, Jesus therefore said to them, children, have you any fish? John's translation is better. John said, boys, have you caught anything? <laughs> now that's really uh, what, the, what the word means. It's a diminutive form, but it means boys. You could say lads if you were a Scot, uh, uh, but uh, it means boys. It's a diminutive, affectionate thing. They hadn't caught anything. And they answered him, no, we didn't catch anything. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the, the boat, and you'll find the catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. There was something miraculous about this. Now I know all the people that say that Jesus just could see a shoal of fish from over there a hundred yards. Why do you have to take all the excitement out of the Bible? Uh, if it's a miracle, let it be a miracle. How in the world did he get them on the fire over there and get them cooked? If he's God, you don't have any problem. If he's not God, all you got is problems. Uh, uh, but he is God. And if he said to the fish, jump on the fire, it gets on the fire. Uh, it's no problem. Any more than Elijah in the Old Testament is fed with ravens who bring something for him to eat. Um, and so here, uh, they recognize that the first time they had met the Lord, the Lord had also been a night when they had been fishing and they hadn't caught anything and he called to them and they did catch something. And so John must have nudged Peter and he said, that's the Lord. Peter catches on a little slow, but when he catches on, he does something. Immediately, he grabbed his robe or whatever he covered himself with and tied it around himself and jumped into the water and started making for shore. That's just like him. The rest of them were there dragging the feet. And uh, Peter got on to shore. And when he got there, I've often thought that, that Peter must have been a very powerful man because it says there were 153 fish and, and it is added that they were large fish. And when they get close to the, to the shore, Peter comes back and pulls that big net full of fish all the way up to the shore by himself. He must have been very powerfully built. Jesus deals with this man personally, and he makes a great testimony of him. The other night, we had a hulking giant of a man who spoke at our athletic banquet. Number 65 for the Oakland Raiders, Mickey Marvin. He, his, his minimum playing weight is around 270. It goes up to 320. 
He told us when he was six years old he weighed 135 pounds. And uh, I was watching Mickey loves Jesus with all of his heart. Now he murders the king's English. And he doesn't have always pronounced the Bible names exactly correct. But he loves the Bible and he reads it. And he, he came to the house afterwards and we visited somebody. He stayed over there in that, in that cafeteria until the floors had been mopped. And the manager was waiting for us to leave because he took a boy back in the little private dining room and talked with that boy about the Lord. And then Mickey called to me and said, will you help him to ask Jesus to come into his heart? That's a great thing. That this big giant of a man, with his simple love for Jesus Christ, was using all that he knew for him. These fisher folk, not the big educated, powerful people of the world were called, but these fishermen. And they use what they have and the Lord honors it. And that boy did ask Jesus Christ to come into his heart. And I noticed he, he waited patiently and the kids who wanted his autograph came up to Mickey and, and one boy said something very complimentary about him and Mickey looked up and he said, don't praise me, praise Jesus. And then he wrote his name and he put a Bible verse down. And all those youngsters, were, young people in the college were standing there listening because these sports figures mean a lot to them. But to see the genuineness of his faith uh, meant much to me. Uh, the big, hulking man uh, with a sweet love for Jesus Christ in his heart. And it touched those people. Someone once said to Dwight L. Moody, who was the greatest soul winner of the last century, they said to Mr. Moody once when he was speaking, oh, your education is defective, your grammar is terrible. And Mr. Moody, who didn't have the benefit of even a high school education, turned to the man who spoke to him and he said, I'm using all the grammar I know for Jesus. What are you doing with yours? It was a good thing to say. A very good thing to say. What are we doing if this personal resurrection has come to us? What have we done? Well, the question is asked of him after Jesus feeds them, and then after he has fed them, he restores this backslider. He asks a simple question, but a searching question, and a saving question, and one that can come to all of us. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now the commentators have difficulty with more than these, whether it means more than these fishing boats and nets, or more than these disciples. Maybe it's a combination of both. Peter had boasted that night in the upper room that though all men would betray him, he would never betray him. So I think he must have thought, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than these love me, these other people who are here? And he said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Now there's a lot of play, a lot of times that preachers talk about the play on words here. One word, agape, which means God's love, which does not expect anything in return and gives fully. And phileo, another Greek word for love, which is a more, uh, a milder term of affection. I don't know that that makes all that much difference because they were probably speaking in Aramaic. 
And uh, I don't know if you can put that much weight on it. Maybe it was the tone of the voice in which it was spoken. Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter answered, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said it to him a second time. Then he said it to him a third time. And Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time. And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And you also know how fallible I am. He knew that nothing could be hidden from him. Jesus does not thrust Peter aside. He gives him a threefold commission, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. And in this commission, he was doing two things. He was showing Peter that he trusted him. That he trusted him. He was also testing him. But he was showing him that he trusted him and that's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness is an opportunity that you grasp, and it's a responsibility that you shoulder. And then you go on with it to bring glory to the Lord. There's a wonderful little book by C.S. Lewis called The Silver Chair. And in this, there's a story of a little girl named Jill, who because she shows off on a cliff, causes a a little boy who is afraid of heights to fall and be killed. Aslan, the great lion, with the breath of his mouth, who represents the Christ figure, swishes him away into heaven. But Jill doesn't know this. And so she is crying. And then when she cries and cries, have you ever cried for a long time? I talked to someone last week who had gone through a grief experience with the death of her father and you weep for a long time, you become very thirsty. And Jill was thirsty and then she heard this rippling sound of water and she turned to look where the water was and there was this great lion who represents Christ. Now you all remember the story how there's no other source of water except that water. How that lion has devoured princes and kingdoms and powers. But then, the thing that I want to get to is this. Jill says, uh, C.S. Lewis says this about Jill, and it's worth remembering when you talk to someone who's troubled. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. Well, that's the truth. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But sooner or later you have to stop. And then you have to decide what to do.